welcome to another interview with In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Simon Brown, a host of the podcast and PhD candidate at UC Berkeley, and I'm speaking with Professor Katie Hull, a lecturer in American Studies at the University of Amsterdam. We discuss her new book, The Machine Has a Soul, American Sympathy with Italian Fascism, out last month from Princeton University Press. Her book explores the many ideological paths that led American writers, publishers, and politicians to hold up Italian fascism as a model to emulate. We discuss the critique of modernity and the fascists' resacralization of politics, their embrace of mechanization to return to a pristine past, and the power of metaphors we find in the archive. You describe the four American figures whose perspective on Italian fascism you study as having a sympathy with Italian fascism. Is there something about fascism in the 20s and 30s that makes it seem particular to Italy in these for these thinkers? I guess in another way, did the thinkers in your book want an American fascism? Or did they think Italian fascism was somehow inherently Italian and could only be emulated by Americans? Yeah, that's a, a good question, Simon. And thank you for having me, by the way. Um, but I think that... Um, the main answer to the question would be that, in general, the people I write about uh, weren't arguing that Italian-style fascism should be you know, foisted onto the United States wholesale. And rather, they were sort of more using examples set by Italian fascism, I think, to point out things that were missing in the United States or to point to reforms and changes that might be possible in the United States. And I'll give you know a couple of concrete examples to make it a bit more concrete. Uh, so, for instance, uh, they wrote really favorably about fascist squads in the early years of fascism, and they presented these squads as you know orderly, patriotic, and disciplined young men who were ready to sacrifice themselves for their country. And uh, perhaps it goes without saying, but I should say it nonetheless. Uh, a lot of this goes in the face of uh, how historians today understand fascist squads and fascist violence. But nonetheless, at the time, you know, that was how these observers characterized these squads as patriotic, disciplined, uh, sacrificing. Um, and I think they did that to hold a mirror up to American society uh, after the First World War. Uh, and to demonstrate how far young people had strayed from these ideals. This is a contemporary critique of American youth in the early 1920s was that people tended to be quite selfish, quite uh, pleasure-seeking, and very cynical about any higher ideals like the nation. So I think that, you know, that would be an example of a case where these observers were using sympathetic portraits of fascism to say something about the United States, but without saying, hey, we should have fascism in America. Uh, another example uh, would be the way that they spoke in very complimentary terms about the fascist corporate state. And this gets a little closer to the idea, you know, were they suggesting uh, some kind of import of Italian fascism into America? But uh, just to give some background on the fascist corporate state, fascist propaganda at least presented it as a huge improvement on liberal democracy. Uh, 
Um, and one of the aspects that fascist propagandists really stressed in the late 1920s was uh, this idea of a corporate parliament. And again, in reality, the corporate parliament was a pretty empty and powerless institution that existed more on paper than it did in any meaningful sense in the lives of ordinary Italians. But following the leader of propagandists, these observers presented the corporate parliament as a gathering together of various representatives of different economic interests. So for instance, there would be experts in agriculture to represent farmers' interests, experts in labor rights to represent workers' interests, lawyers to represent the professionals and so on. And in theory, although not in practice, uh, this meant that uh, the legislation that the corporate parliament crafted was uh, both expertly uh, crafted because these people were experts in their respective fields, but it was also uh, intimately representative of the interests of ordinary Italians. So uh, for American fascist sympathizers, uh, they you know, looked with admiration at this corporate parliament, but to get to your question of what did they think should happen uh, in the United States, I would cite, for instance, Anne O'Hare McCormick, Mm -hmm. uh, who wrote for the New York Times. And she didn't argue that the United States should get rid of Congress and replace it with the fascist corporate state. Instead, she used Italy's uh, apparent success with this corporate parliament to say, you know, what about creating a parallel institution to con Congress, which actually draws on American traditions, uh, but serves the same kind of role as the corporate parliament does in Italy. And the example she suggested was one that political scientists at the time, or a few political scientists at the time, were also exploring, which was this idea of a kind of formal gathering of lobbyists. So rather than having lobbyists, very much as they do today, floating around Washington and influencing policy in informal uh, and backdoor ways, uh, McCormick suggested that there should be an official institution that formalized lobbyists' roles as experts in various sectors of the economy and society and actually harness that expert expertise so that they would openly craft, and legis uh, craft legislation that would then be passed on to Congress. So you know, she perceived this as a kind of equivalent to the Italian corporate state which would be a supplement to Congress rather than a substitute for Congress. So in that way, it would be uh, different from Italian fascism. Uh, I'd like to, I think, mention here as well that um, these fascist sympathizers' arguments that Italian fascism shouldn't be grafted onto the United States were also uh, actually in line with the preferences of Mussolini's regime. Mm. And that's in part because in the late 20s, a journalist uh, in Harper's Magazine published an article about a group called the Fascist League of North America, which was an organization of Italian-American citizens, uh, but it was controlled or at least funded by the fascist regime in Rome. And of course, this idea that uh, there was an organization on American territory that was controlled by a foreign power didn't really sit well with most Americans or with the US government. And it actually caused a bit of a diplomatic brouhaha. So um, as a result of that brouhaha, the Italian regime 
uh, chose to shut down the fascist league of north america and i think you know that this incident and italy's uh, response to it which was to shut down this organization shows that Mussolini and, and his cohorts didn't uh, think it was in their own interest, and certainly it wasn't in their own interest, to have Americans kind of going around the United States and splashing a message that fascism was for export. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead, when they sort of argued that Italian fascism could be a source of inspiration but shouldn't be imported directly, uh, you know, that was much more in line with what the regime wanted them to be saying, even if the regime wasn't directly uh, influencing them. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense insofar as if the association with fascism was as a kind of an Italian phenomenon, then to advocate for it in America would seem to be a kind of an imposition mm-hmm. of something foreign, which is it's a really interesting dynamic. And you know, it leads me, you, you mentioned in your answer talking about self, the, the kind of critique of American selfishness, especially among mm-hmm. youth. I think that gets to another related question I had, which is you know, about the, the conditions after the First World War uh, and how different they were for Americans and for Italians. I mean, I think people might be familiar with the extent to which in Italy, the, the sense of a, a, a stolen victory or mm-hmm. a kind of Failed, a failed victory, um, you know, animated a lot of the dissatisfaction and, and some of the early fascist mobilization. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the United States, uh, it would seem that no one would think of the war in such terms, that it was a kind of a, a, a partial victory. Um, mm-hmm. And so the, the fates of the two countries seem different after the war. So I was just curious, um, you know, considering on the one hand kind of American affluence and power after the war and Italian uh, instability after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, is it this kind of critique of like selfishness or consumerism that seems to be the the common thread for someone like Anne O'Hare McCormick? Like what, what, what does she see as the thing that can unite these two very different um, conditions between Italy yeah. and the United States? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question. And uh, it is interesting uh, that you sort of uh, say that And you're absolutely correct to say that this sense in Italy of uh, deep disillusionment with the experience of the First World War, because uh, Italian, uh, the promised Italian territorial gains when they joined the Allied side hadn't been realized in the post-war conferences. And so there was a sense of a a wasted war in Italy, Um, that actually there was a parallel in the United States to that, despite the fact that it was... uh, a you know an unambiguous victory for the United States, this, the First World War, but there was a deep, deep current of disillusionment in the U.S. following the war, and as I mean, it stemmed much more from this idea that lives had been lost pointlessly, that this was a war between European imperial powers, that it had been uh, pushed by munitions makers, that it had been sold to American people as a war for higher ideals, but actually it was a war to line the pot- pockets of uh, industrialists um, mm-hmm. and to support European imperialists. Um, so there was a sort of similar current of disillusionment that these observers uh, found running through Italy and running through their own country. Um, but that for them, the idea was that it, 
that fascism managed to turn that current of disillusionment round and kind of channel it into a patriotic movement was how they saw it. As in the United States, they saw basically disillusionment then just uh, transforming into self-centeredness, a much greater focus on the private self in the 1920s. And I think they almost... uh, held Italy up to say, you know, if a country that was this deeply disillusioned and this uh, screwed over, in a sense, by the experience of the First World War, can, from the ashes of the war, produce a patriotic movement, then why can't we? Mm. Right. So it's that difference that kind of emphasizes the argument. That's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, Absolutely. So, and, and we've, we've now mentioned one of the figures that you talk about. So I just want to ask kind of in general about how you, how you found or how you chose the <laughs> four figures through which you examine this relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they have different political uh, perspectives. They work in journalism and academia, in politics and, and in Italian language publishing specifically. So I was just wondering uh, if you could talk about how you chose these four figures or mm-hmm. kind of stood out about yep. them that, that led you to, to think about them. Sure. Um, and to describe that, I need to also uh, recognize my indebtedness to John Diggins, who's a 1970 uh, Mussolini and fascism, The View from America, 1972 book uh, was kind of the starting point for me. I read it, uh, I think, in my second year of my PhD program. I really loved the book. Um, and he covers all these figures in amongst the hundreds and hundreds of other figures that he covers. So, you know, he he mentions all the four people uh, that I refer to or that I investigate in great depth. And he mentions them all in a page or two on and off. Um, and I sort of went through Dickens's book as, uh, as the first stage of my research and made notes on many of the people that he discusses. I then uh, wanted to be quite practical because my idea was to do a much sort of deeper exploration of these people. So I then needed to find people who hadn't just once upon a time once said something sympathetic about fascism, but who had actually you know, expressed sustained uh, sympathies for fascism over at least a decade. And in that way, be able to kind of explore an idea of change over time how their opinions changed as fascist Italy changed, but also how their opinions changed as uh, the United States changed. So that already kind of took away many, many people whom Diggins refers to. And then I also felt that it was quite important to take people from different spheres of life because Diggins does already show that, uh, you know, it wasn't just, say, Catholics who were... uh, uh, sympathetic towards fascism. It wasn't just Italian Americans who were sympathetic to fascism. It wasn't just people with business interests who were. And so I wanted to sort of get a fair representation of various different groups. Um, and that, in a sense, is how I came overall to these four individuals, because I have uh, one journalist, Anna Herr McCormick, who is both Catholic and has sort of more liberal, progressive, uh, form of Catholic persuasions that sort of influenced by ideas of Catholic social justice. I have Richard Washburn Child, who was both a diplomat and ultimately a writer and journalist. Uh, but I think, you know, his views were much more uh, representative of a conservative viewpoint for most of his career. 
and in a way we're very in line with the American business community. Um, I have Generoso Pope, who uh, was probably the most powerful Italian-American in the United States uh, in the 1920s. He was an extremely wealthy, self-made man, uh, publisher of many Italian-American newspapers, uh, also an uh, uh, important figure in the Democratic Party in terms of uh, mobilizing the Italian-American vote. Uh, he was Catholic as well, but I would say Catholic very light, as McCormick had sort of deep Catholic convictions. And then uh, the last person is Herbert Schneider. He's a very interesting uh, case. And again, Diggins you know, covers this in a chapter as a sort of, he mentions Schneider once or twice, but he covers him in a chapter of the book. And it's uh, more with regard to pragmatic philosophy and the overlay between uh, pragmatic philosophy and uh, potential sympathies for fascism. So it's really to kind of give that broad coverage, but go in somewhat deep with a sustained uh, chronological look uh, that drew me to those four people. Right, and and they, they all do kind of reflect different different currents in American mm -hmm. politics and culture, and and they all have interest interesting perspectives on the Italian case too. And mm -hmm. one thing uh, you you mentioned with regard to a few of the figures is they're they're their Catholic faith and their Catholic affiliation. Mm -hmm. And one of the, you have a, a chapter, particularly about the way these critics and these observers discuss Mussolini specifically as a, as a leader. And you talk about how a common thread running through their commentary on Mussolini is um, this association with his leadership as somehow spiritual and adding a kind of religious character to a politics that has become mechanical and um, and overly materialistic. And so I wanted to ask kind of about that relationship between how these thinkers kind of almost all associate Mussolini and the fascist government with a kind of spiritual return to ritual in government um, and, and what Mussolini was trying to project about his own government. Um, and then I'd be interested to hear also about how that might relate to his relationship with the Catholic Church and Italian politics, though I know that's a, a big topic. So I'd be kind of mm -hmm. curious to hear about how their perspective on this religious feature of his leadership mm -hmm. kind of relates to Mussolini's own conception of that or his yeah. projection. Yeah, I mean, I'll take the uh, actually the organized religion side of it first, and then I'll talk a little bit more about the spirituality side. Um, and uh, I think it's, it, overall, it's a really interesting question. Uh, and I think in a way, two of these figures, and I'll talk about a little bit McCormick in this regard, and Schneider um, had responses uh, to uh, fascism's relationship with Catholicism uh, that were quite different and also actually sort of track strands in historiography. Uh, or strands in historiography have tracked their responses, I should say. Uh, this all sounds a bit obscure, so I'm just going to give some details. Um, but basically, you know, some historians uh, have discussed fascism as in a kind of awkward alliance with the Catholic Church and one that uh, worked to both institutions' mutual benefit. And, you know, historians who belong to this school would stress, for instance, the Lateran Accords, 
which was signed in 1929 between uh, Mussolini and Cardinal Gaspari, Cardinal Gaspari on behalf of the Pope. And what these accords did was end a 70-year standoff between the Italian church and the Italian state. And that was because since uh, the very beginning of Italy's unification, I mean, Italy was you know, less than 100 years old uh, in the 1920s. It had only been a country since 1861, uh, but that the state had refused to recognize the church's temporal power. And with the Lateran Accords, uh, the church and state came to this compromise agreement. Uh, and, you know, it's down to these accords that the Vatican exists today as a separate state so that when we go to Rome and we go to the Vatican, we can buy Vatican stamps, right? Because it's a separate country from Italy. Um, and that was because this treaty recognized the Pope's temporal power. But it also made other concessions to the church. For instance, uh, it allowed uh, religious instructions in schools and it allowed the church to continue to have uh, separate organizations for Catholic youth. Um, and so that's kind of the background uh, to McCormick's response, uh, because with all of that, and um, because this had happened under Mussolini's watch, uh, many American Catholics were real fans of Mussolini because they sort of believed he'd been able to do something that previous Italian leaders hadn't been able to do, which was to formalize and stabilize the role of the Catholic Church. And you can sort of see this very much in uh, McCormick's writing and to some degree in Pope's newspaper as well, because they both uh, present Mussolini as the kind of man of the hour, a hero, almost sent by God to resolve this crisis that had eluded previous Italian leaders. And uh, something that McCormick did, which again is uh, traced through uh, into some of the historiography, was that she presented Mussolini as actually strengthening religion in Italy. Uh, and she would give examples, for instance, that the fascists had their own Boy Scouts, the Balila. Um, but she would stress that within the Balila, there were Catholic prelates who would perform uh, services for the Balila. The Balila would go to church before they engaged in um, fascist activities and, and exercises so that she emphasized, whereas you know, in the 1920s and early 30s, most young people would be falling off the rails of religion and becoming less and less religious through fascism, they were becoming more and more. Um, in contrast to McCormick's reading of this relationship between uh, Catholicism and fascism, you have the reading, uh, I think, a much more sophisticated reading that comes from Herbert Wallace Schneider, the professor of moral philosophy at Columbia University. And, you know, he's equally admiring of fascism. And uh, his reading also has echoes in historiography today, but I'll mention that in a second. I'll just sort of describe his reading for now. He, in essence, uh, admired Mussolini and fascism, not so much because uh, Mussolini and fascism promoted the church, but because fascism appeared to be beating the church at its own game uh, by creating deep attachments and sort of spiritual sensations in people that were actually not religious, but were religious-like, right? They were actually statist. Um, and Schneider, I would say, actually is very cynical about Mussolini. Uh, unlike the other people who I studied, 
he doesn't say that Mussolini was this spiritual figure or that Mussolini was someone who was sent by God to save Italy. What he says instead is that Mussolini is basically an amazing actor who can inhabit the guise of a spiritual leader uh, and that that kind of galvanizing uh, impression he gives of the spiritual leader is effective from a political standpoint. And more than Mussolini as an individual, Schneider's actually interested in fascism and, as a movement. And here he says that fascism's strength is really that it can generate the sense of belonging and a sense of spiritual uplift. Um, so that it can generate feelings of adhesion among Italians that are much stronger than anything contemporary Americans were experiencing, whether through, you know, through the church or through their sports club or through any other organization. So what Schneider was arguing wasn't that fascism bolstered the church, but he was arguing that it uh, replaced the church by sort of adopting and adapting the rituals and symbols of religion. Uh, and where the overlap here is in contemporary historiography is uh, that Schneider's arguments really foreshadow one that's made by a very well-known Italian historian called Emilio Gentile, who uh, more or less said the same thing actually in his book, in, which was published in the 1990s, and it's called The Sacralization of Politics in Fascist Italy. But it's very much about how the success of the fascist state rested on its ability to sort of adopt and adapt the rituals of Catholicism, but to politicize those rituals. Um, so that's kind of what I can say here on the relationship between uh, fascism and Catholicism. Uh, but I would say that there's sort of almost a separate question, which is this one of Mussolini's supposed uh, spirituality. Mm. Um, and that all of these American observers held him up uh, as someone who was spiritual, or in Schneider's case, who could effectively fake being spiritual. Um, and they did that to argue that uh, people hungered for some kind of charismatic leadership and that they needed something that was more than just an effective government. And I think that this seemed uh, particularly pertinent in the 1920s because, um, that was a time that they really believed that American government was lacking uh, this sort of dynamic, charismatic leadership uh, that would tend to people on sort of deeper emotional or spiritual levels. Um, and even though for many people, although this is a, a somewhat of a generalization because there are always major exceptions, um, but for many people, the economy was ticking along pretty well in the 1920s. Um, but maybe actually as a result of that, these observers felt that something was missing for most people. Um, and they pointed to the falling away of religion and also the decline of communities. And in addition to that, I think something less tangible, right? This sort of feeling of emptiness. And uh, behind that, they found that there was a failure of leadership and a failure of uh, successive happened to be Republican presidents, it wouldn't necessarily have had to be, and I don't think, um, but a failure of those presidents to provide a kind of galvanizing form of leadership that might fill the void that was left when all these old belief systems fell away. Right. And that's what's so interesting about that difference uh, to me between McCormick and Schneider, that seems that they they have a similar diagnosis of the problem, that mm -hmm. there's 
kind of modern modernity, whether it's a kind of secularization or mechanization that leaves people feeling less spiritually connected. Mm-hmm. And for McCormick, the solution, uh, or at least the grounds for praising the fascist government, is a kind of return of the church to a central place in public life. Mm-hmm. For Schneider, it's you say it's almost the opposite. It's a replacement of mm-hmm. traditional the traditional uh, vehicles for spirituality with the yeah. state and with, with state affiliation. And this is like a very general question leading from that, but you know, I guess one one thing I found myself thinking as I was reading, especially in a, when thinking about the difference between thinkers like that, is that you know, on the one hand, you 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 you're thinking of these different answers as you know conservative answers and liberal answers or conservative aspects mm-hmm. of the Italian fascism and liberal aspects that are more forward looking. Um, but at the same time, those differences seem to kind of break down all the time when I, when, when reading the book, um, yeah. thinking about how these thinkers are dealing with it. I mean, do you find just in general uh, that difference to be at all helpful in your analysis of how these thinkers are dealing with uh, fascism or does it kind of consistently get, um, does it kind of consistently run up against what they're actually saying uh, and that kind of defies those differences? Yeah, that's some fascinating questions and, and it's so complex and I'd have to really try and pass it out because the example you, in the example you gave potentially, uh, McCormick's the more conservative thinker with her idea of a stronger religious institutions and Schneider, Schneider's ideas are potentially have potential to be progressive in that it's an acceptance of the falling away of religion and its replacement with the state. But then on the flip side, you know, replacement with the state can have some fairly (laughs) totalitarian connotations that could be anything but liberal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, in some areas, I think that the liberal conservative division uh, can function quite well. For instance, um, I think that McCormick's more progressive instincts and generoso popes as well uh, were there was was a kind of a clear overlay in their responses to the great depression and what they saw Mm -hmm. what they believed to be happening in fascist italy in the sense that they saw uh, an increasingly interventionist state uh, carving out policies to help ordinary italians and they said well you know then uh, increasingly interventionist state can make policies and in, in create policy responses that would help ordinary Americans. So I think there it holds, uh, and, Schneid, and Schneider didn't have much to say about the depression child uh, whose instincts were usually more conservative, said actually we're going too far in the Great Depression. So there it holds, but elsewhere it doesn't. And, you know, fascinatingly or maybe not uh, it very much kind of gels with a lot of the historiography of fascism itself and mm-hmm. authors who've argued that to think of fascism as far right is missing something right mm-hmm. that the part of the appeal of fascism is that it defies left and right and mm-hmm. maybe that's also reflected in the fact that people in the US whether they were republican democrat uh, traditionally conservative or more socially progressive could all find something to appreciate in fascism. Right. Yeah. I, I was thinking about how you discussed the the kind of affinities between uh, Italian 
fascist political reforms, like the the kind of parliament that you were parliamentary reforms you discussed, mm-hmm. and the kinds of things as you described, like Walter Lippmann was talking about at the same mm-hmm. time. Not that he was explicitly praising Italian fascism, no. but rather a kind of growing skepticism that democracy, parliamentary democracy, still worked in the era of mass media in the way that it had. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so, and you, you talked, you brought up economics and I wanted to, to ask kind of specifically about that mm-hmm. um, and about these different visions for the response to the Great Depression. Um, and, you know, you talk about how it seems a lot of these fascist sympathizers are, they have a similar analysis of the problem that over-mechanization of the economy had, mm-hmm. had produced problems mm-hmm. and, and machine production. Um and the, the policies that the fascist government uses to respond to it are uh, kind of on the one hand seem like a kind of agrarian policy of returning people to pre-mechanical production. But on the other hand, they're praised for being very modern and very up to date. So mm-hmm. I was kind of curious to hear just in general about that dynamic. Um, you know, it, it seems like this is look, these policies look kind of like a nostalgia for an agrarian economy, mm-hmm. but they're also much more and they're praised for much more. So can you talk about how that works in economic policy? Yeah, and I could talk about it both in economic policy and more just kind of in the cultural sphere as well. Because I think in a way, um, it kind of gets to the heart of my book uh, in the sense that um, it really kind of keys into what Americans believed they were struggling with in the 1920s and 1930s. And as you sort of mentioned, a lot of those uh, boil down to anxieties around the impact of technology and modernization on American society. Um, and you know, we can talk about uh, the technologization of labor, but there are also other aspects of mechanization. So uh, for instance, uh, the impact of the radio which I find really interesting, the discussions that were generated by the radio in the 20s and 30s, because I think for, for nowadays, we often kind of think of the radio as this erudite older brother of uh, television. And it's pretty mm-hmm. common for us to think about kind of vegging out in front of the TV and that not being good for the brain. Um, mm-hmm. And yet we sort of have this idea of radio, like you're in my conversation right now, right? As something that's stimulating and encourages kind of an active engagement of the frontal mm-hmm. cortex. But actually that's not at all how commentators perceived radio when it entered the mainstream of American society in the 20s mm-hmm. and 30s. And you know, what they saw instead was uh, the same kind of phenomenon we would associate today with TV or actually with social media, which was, mm-hmm. uh, this sense that people were uh, passively and naively receiving information from the radio and almost being brainwashed uh, by these sounds that were circulating around their living rooms and wafting into their heads. Um, So, you know, commentators were really worrying that a machine like the radio was depriving people of their capacity to engage critically with information um in a way that you know they'd previously been able to say when they were reading the newspaper and so to get onto the economic side of that mechanization as you rightly point out um these observers worried a lot uh, about the economics of mechanization and some of that would seem to be borne out by the great depression 
because at least on the face of it, although you know commentators nowadays would find uh, much more complex causes for the Great Depression, but on the face of it, the depression seemed to prove uh, this idea that um, manual labor had been displaced and that mass un unemployment had been caused by mechanical production. Uh, mm -hmm. but I would also say that, you know, the anxieties around uh, mechanical production also went much deeper uh, than economic anxieties uh, and kind of entered a sort of a deep cultural place uh, because there was this also this idea that mechanization was depriving people of their autonomy. Um, so, you know, if we take the example of uh, pre-industrial independent craftsmen, uh, that man uh, would have once, uh, and, and, you know, I often find myself using the term man rather than person because mm -hmm. so much of the discourse of these people was very uh, influenced by ideas of masculinity. Right. So that man would have, you know, once been responsible for every aspect of uh, the product he made from, you know, its design to its sourcing, to its crafting itself, to the sale even. Um, whereas a factory worker in the 20s or 30s uh, just had to repeat the same task, uh, maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand times a day to get his wage. And so what these observers were worrying about was actually uh, not just the economic effects, but this sort of wide-ranging effects of this loss of autonomy, uh, whether it was sort of the emotional of effect of no of emptiness, right? No longer having a satisfaction of having uh, mm -hmm. seen a product from cradle to sale, uh, mm -hmm. so the lack of emotional satisfaction, or again, sort of the intellectual effect, because someone who'd spent nine hours a day performing these repetitive tasks and then went home to listen to the radio without thinking about what he was hearing and then spent his weekend consuming some kind of, you know, mass produced entertainment like a movie. Uh, they conceived of that person as a less effective citizen and less mm -hmm. capable of making informed uh, decisions. So, you know, before I explain the counter example of uh, fascism as these observers perceived it, I think, uh, and this gets back to your Walter Lippmann point, uh, it's just it's important to point out that uh, these discourses around anxiety about modernity, mechanization and mass production were not unique to American fascist sympathizers. They were actually you know, dominant criticisms of contemporary society and they appeared in the writing of countless, countless commentators, most of whom did not express sympathy with fascism. So Lippmann, uh, Lewis Mumford, Waldo Frank. And so this didn't necessarily lead to sympathizing with fascism, but for the people I study, it did. Um, and so here I'll kind of get back <laughs> very slowly, wind back to your question about you know, modernity and tradition as they mm -hmm. perceived its interplay in Italy. Um, and you're absolutely right that um, these observers weren't against mechanization and they didn't uh, perceive of Italy as a place that was deeply traditional. Uh, they recognized that uh, there was no turning back from modernity and from modernization and mechanization. And what they appreciated in Mussolini's Italy was uh, what they imagined uh, uh, was that the Italian uh, regime had kind of found a perfect balance uh, by creating this sort of conscious 
conscious balance and conscious equilibrium between tradition and modernity. Uh, and so, for instance, in the chapter I write on the Great Depression, it opens with the scene uh, that's described in Generoso Pope's newspaper. And in, in the, it's a story of Mussolini driving a fast car from one village mm -hmm. to another in the Piedmont region. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also sort of a, a story about how Mussolini is responding to Italians' needs during the Great Depression, because each time he passes a group of people, he stops his car, he gets out of the car, he talks to them and he gives them practical help. So it's already uh, giving a sense that this is a regime that's responsive to the needs of people, but it's also a story that functions as a metaphor for fascism's relationship with the machine and with modernity, because here what we see is Mussolini using the machine uh, to make connections rather than to break connections um, and stopping this very fast car whenever he wants to stop it through the force of his own will. And that actually seems, uh, appears to be in total contrast to the way that machines were working in American society, which was right. according to these observers that they weren't fostering connections, they were cutting off connections between people. And, right. you know, at the same time, men and women in the United States, according to this discourse, weren't in control of the pace of the machine. They couldn't stop it. It's taken on a life of its own with this overproduction that had led to the Great Depression. And if we uh, look at uh, their writing and a lot of the images that were produced from this time, it's even of, you know, anthropomorphic machines that are kind of taking over society. There's this sense in the machine being completely out of control, out mm -hmm. of human control. Um, and you had the question about agricultural policy, and I think that is very much an area where uh, this uh, calibration between uh, modernity and tradition, uh, as imagined by fascist sympathizers, kind of really comes to the fore. So um, just a little background, you know, during the Great Depression, the fascist state engaged in uh, what it called a battle for grain. And uh, part of how they did this, or a large part of how they did this, was through land reclamation in the south of Italy. Uh, so they dredged marshlands and turned them into arable land. And they compelled urban residents to migrate onto this land to farm it. And as you can imagine, uh, historians haven't been very complimentary about this policy, uh, in part because of the compulsion element, uh, but also because wheat and you've lived long enough in Northern California, I'm sure to agree with this, wheat is considered to be far less nutritious than protein. So by uh, you know, forcing Italians to produce all this wheat, they took away from the usual uh, traditional uh, farming produce, which was uh, milk, cheese, eggs, livestock, olives protein. Uh, so from an you know, ordinary Italian perspective, historians have shown that this policy was absolutely disastrous. But obviously, mm -hmm. these observers uh, conceived of it uh, quite differently. So for instance, McCormick, uh, who normally wrote for the Times, actually wrote a very long article for Ladies Home Journal, which was a very popular women's magazine. Um, and she praised uh, Mussolini's agricultural policy as this perfect blend of me mechanization and tradition. Uh, mm -hmm. 
so uh, it was sort of a reflection. It was it's kind of like a the microcosm of this story of Mussolini and his car becomes mm -hmm. reflected in uh, the way she describes fascist agricultural policy as the state using uh, mechanical means for traditional ends. As right. by her conception, you know, they had dredged the marshlands with cutting edge machines, but the end result was uh, that they enabled families who'd been oppressed by urban life to move right. to small communities, to live in small and pretty little houses, surrounded by neighbors, with access to community facilities like a post office, a church, and a schoolhouse. So all these right. kind of uh, very simple civic institutions that were enabling connection. And so she really presented the Italian state as you know, facilitating a return to sort of small town or rural community life in a way that she also believed was desirable in the United States. Right. So it's it, yeah, that that's very interesting because it's it's like a celebration of the use of technology to overcome exactly the kind of alienation that mm -hmm. technology and alienation has produced. Exactly. Yeah, that the, the metaphor get my um, book, Simon. I love that you actually get my book. <laughs> <laughs> It's it. I mean, you make it clear enough to get for sure throughout. Um, and and you know, and one to that very point, uh, you know, the met that metaphor of the car in in Piedmont is so helpful and so evocative. And I wanted to ask about kind of how you locate and identify these metaphors. Uh, one of your late chapters is specifically about the prevalence of the metaphor of the garden mm -hmm. kind of coming. Up and over again, especially in the later 1930s, uh, in the kind of particular moment when uh, the Italian fascist government is trying to distance itself from Nazi fascism, at least in a, mm -hmm. in a public image for Americans. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was curious if you could just talk about kind of how you begin to identify these metaphors in the, in the archives you're reading, kind of when they yeah. start cropping up to the point where you can kind of tie it to a a specific moment or associated with a particular political strategy? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting question. Um, and uh, part of uh, how I would get these metaphors is a little bit process. Um, so, and that would really start uh, with those days when I was in the archive and harvesting, right? So for instance, mm -hmm. uh, with the uh, Italian-American newspaper that uh, I used for Generoso Pope, which is his principal paper, although he had many others, Il Progresso Italo-Americano, the Library of Congress had that on microfilm. So mm -hmm. you know, I would spend days actually uh, just I can't remember what technology I use in the Library of Congress, but basically just taking images on my USB plug of pages of this uh, newspaper. But some advice that I'd got, uh, which I found super useful, was always to kind of leave the archives 15 minutes before I was completely dead and done for the day and spend those 15 minutes already at that point when I was really just harvesting, writing up some of the impressions that I'd got because mm -hmm. 
it's amazing how much you know you're absorbing even as you're just taking these pictures but if you don't write anything down yeah sure later you go back and you write detailed notes but those in first impressions will already start to give you a feeling and I wasn't taking every picture of every single page right so there was some almost unconscious usually uh decision making that was going on that was driving me okay take this but not this take this but not this and that's kind of actually in the brain patterns are emerging but you need to figure out uh what they are right and so yeah. you know for the uh chapter on the depression this sort of overwhelming kind of theme that was starting to emerge from my sources was this idea of in the united states man being overwhelmed by machinery in italy uh, man and machinery being held in balance and equipose, right? Um, the metaphor of the garden actually similarly, I think, began to uh, emerge from Pope's newspaper. And that's interesting in itself because it probably was the one that was most reflecting of all the sources that I used. It was the one that was being fed most by fascist propaganda because uh, the, you know, the fascist Ministry of Cultural Affairs would send materials to the Italian consulate general in New York and the Italian consulate general would send this on to General So Pope's newspaper. And it would, you know, Pope could to some degree choose what he did or didn't put in his newspaper, but to have all this free material heading his way meant that often the newspaper was picking up on themes that were being sort of funneled to him via uh, the fascist regime. And essentially what I started to notice for the late 1930s uh, were stories that um, were much more fantastic. So in the early 30s, uh, fascist Italy had been portrayed in kind of quite earthy, practical terms as a reference point for New Deal policies. But what I started to see in the late 30s were kind of almost magical stories. So I read the story about the fascist government creating a synthetic alternative to wool, which was like the miracle answer to any problems with wool shortages. And then I saw another story about how the fascists had created a lake in the middle of the desert in East Africa. And so kind of these stories were the starting point from uh, for what I noticed as a sort of broader pattern, which were uh, the proliferation of stories of fascism overcoming constraints that adhered in nature. And so that's where the gardening metaphor began, because when we think about gardening, it's partly sort of man using his wits and his skill to control nature and to get more out of nature than nature would naturally give. It's a lot of use of the nature worth. Um, and so I think that, you know, this uh, idea of overcoming constraints that inhered in nature uh, had a had uh, appeal in the United States and it had reasons for its origins in Italy. So on the Italian side of the sheet of the the Italian side of the equation, the regime was becoming increasingly authoritarian. Uh, and some historians, although you know debatable in the historiography, some historians would use the word totalitarian. So mm -hmm. part of the image that the regime wanted to portray was that it was able to get control of forces that ordinary men and again, I'm using men intentionally, and ordinary systems of government would have difficulty controlling. On the, the US side of the equation, um, there was some appeal of this idea 
of being able to overcome constraints because I think there was a real sort of cultural shift that I perceived in the 30s that was caused by the longevity of the Great Depression. So in the early 30s, I mean, things were pretty grim under Hoover for most people because there wasn't sufficient government response. But then in the early 30s with Roosevelt's election and the New Deal, there's this sort of upbeat feeling. We can do this. We can beat this. You know, we just need uh, the will, the correct policies, and and we're going to recover. But what you have around, say, 36 and 37, 37, there's a second uh, recession which was known as the Roosevelt recession, there's a lot of industrial unrest. Some New Deal policies are struck down by the Supreme Court. So there's not, not this sense that we can just uh, legislate our way out of this. And mm-hmm. those policies that aren't struck down don't seem to be making much of a dent in the, in the economic crisis. So in, in amongst that sort of feeling like of we, we can't do anything to affect our own destiny, Italy seems to sort of have an escapist appeal to these observers as a place uh, where man has succeeded in overcoming any meaningful limitations. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of one side of the gardening metaphor, this idea of overcoming constraints. But there's another side, and it gets to uh, what you mentioned about uh, Nazi Germany. Um, And I think that was particularly important both for fascist propagandists and for sympathetic observers. Um, Because it's not just the idea of men controlling nature, but it's also this idea of improving on the natural environment and making it more beautiful and making it a a productive and nurturing place. And the reason why that's so important does indeed have a lot to do with Nazism because uh, while expressing admiration for fascist Italy was pretty socially acceptable in the US, especially in the 20s, but also actually well into the 30s, you know, expressions of sympathy for Nazi Germany were less widespread. And there was a much more universal, though I wouldn't say unanimous view, that Nazi Germany was repressive, aggressive and beyond the pale. Obviously, there were many exceptions and there were still plenty of Nazi sympathizers, but it was far less widespread than uh, fascist sympathy. So I think that's why this idea of fascist Italy is working to kind of improve on the existing environment and make it more beautiful was really appealing to fascist propagandists and sympathizers because it helped them distinguish between fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. And you see this in McCormick's journalism. And she describes Nazi Germany as this really sterile place. And she actually emphasizes that any physical changes, any urban planning changes that the Nazis make, take the form of raising things to the ground. And this is a kind of uh, an accompaniment to her characterization of Nazi brutality towards Catholics and Jews. Um, So she's, you know, she basically characterizes Nazism as this place that raises people and uh, architecture to the ground in a utterly brutal and unforgiving fashion. And she draws actually often explicit comparisons between Nazism and fascism. For instance, by referencing the difference between uh, what the Nazis did to Munich to what the fascists have done in Rome. And again, and I sort of always have to point this out because otherwise I feel like I'm uh, repeating fascist propaganda 
historians totally disagree that what fascists did in Rome was really wonderful. So I just want to point that out. You know, Mussolini presided over archaeological projects, it's true, and so they did facilitate the uncovering of uh, many of you know, the archaeological remains that we would appreciate as tourists in Rome today, but they also did this at kind of an enormous price, which was by tearing down huge swathes of medieval Rome. But uh, McCormick didn't characterize it that way. What she characterized uh, uh, was a project that uh, was one of beautification, but it was beautification without any of the kind of sterile connotations. So uh, that was really aided, this idea that it wasn't sterile, by the fact that uh, the fascists were uncovering history and uncovering a really deep history. So she could claim they weren't sort of just creating some kind of urban planning kitsch theme mm -hmm. park in Rome, but that they were actually artfully blending old and new, religious, spiritual, ancient and modern in a way that felt very kind of holistic and organic and spiritually fulfilling. Mm -hmm. um, so that this gardening metaphor of kind of digging, building, creating, beautifying really helped uh, fascist sympathizers distinguish Italian fascism as this life-giving force uh, from Nazism as a program that was sterile and aesthetically brutal. Right. Yeah, and I found it so interesting, too, in that section, how um, the, the kind of intentions of projecting an image different from uh, Nazi brutality and militarism uh, through the metaphor of the garden kind of that the associations run out beyond the strategy and particularly in the case of the invasion of Ethiopia mm -hmm. where that this garden imagery comes up again and yet it's in the context of a destructive violent war um, with the intention of remaking you know a, a formerly independent country so it, it you know it's, it's an interesting way that the metaphor kind of outruns the um, the positive absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And there's somewhere in the book that where I say that in some ways the garden metaphor is just their way of doing their best with some really bad material because, right. you know, the, it is what's going on by the late 1930s is uh, not pretty, especially in Ethiopia. Um, but, you know, there are also a lot of echoes uh, with the colonization of Ethiopia and the idea uh, of... Uh, gardening as a sort of uh, improvement on the land and that's a discourse that imperial powers have always used and something that kind of occurs in the pages of Generoso Pope's newspaper uh, and this comes from fascist propaganda is sort of holding uh, America up as, hip as hypocrites, Americans up as hypocrites for criticizing the fascist invasion of Ethiopia because they're like well when you were expanding west across the American continent in the guise of a civilizing mission to cultivate the land and take it away from Native Americans who were mismanaging the land and not improving on the land, no one held you to account. So why are you right. now holding us account to the, for doing the same thing in Ethiopia? And so that uh, idea of colonization as a sort of gardening project writ large is also one that runs through uh, most imperial discourse. Right. And I think I, I think that makes a really 
a really nice arc from the beginning to the end of your book, whereby the end there is a kind of growing skepticism about the about the regime and and its ex- the extent to which it can be applicable to the United States. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be a good place uh, to ask you then about um, if you're working on something new now and if you'd like to talk about your next project. Sure, my next project. Um... Well, I'm currently teaching a lot, which I love. And a course that I've taught uh, now for three years and I just wrapped up teaching it for the third year is uh, a course about uh, new left autobiographies in the 1960s and uh, what we can learn from them, both in terms of activism and politics, but also about the autobiographical form and the making of the autobiographical self. And so Mm -hmm. students seem to really enjoy reading these autobiographies and I love them a lot as well. And we read uh, autobiographies from black power activists, civil rights activists, uh, feminist activists, uh, also uh, members of SDS, the student movement. And we find kind of commonalities and differences across them. But something that I would like to explore in my next project is the intersection of the autobiographical self and uh, the emotions that are expressed in autobiographies and how that fed into activism. So you can tell probably from the way I'm talking about it that it's a a bubbling and nascent project rather than a fully articulated one, but that's where I'm going at the moment. Great. Oh, I look forward to the chance to read it. And Maybe in 10 years, eh? (laughs) (laughs) us then as well um and so professor katie hall thank you so much for joining us and talking about your book today thanks simon this has been so fun and thank you for getting my book i really appreciate that (laughs) 